Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 35. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, The men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking to him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa. For Simon, who is called Peter, 
He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to invite Pastor Vanya Levens to come to the front as I welcome her. We have a wonderful opportunity to hear the good news of the kingdom of God through Vanya Levens. Um, besides being an amazing mus- musician, Vanya is a fellow alum from Regent College, which is where we met many years ago. I remember her playing the flute uh, very, very, very beautifully. Um, and she is now uh, the lead pastor at Marine View Chapel in the Dunbar Southlands area. She's also a spiritual director, and she comes from Ottawa. And uh, she serves also as a faculty associate at Regent College. Thank you for bringing today's sermon, Vania. Uh, welcome to First Baptist. We feel blessed to have you in our midst. Uh, may God continue to bless Marine View Chapel through you through your life and ministry. Good afternoon. It's a joy to be with you today. Um, Some years ago, when I was between pastoral positions, I had the privilege of attending First Baptist, and uh, it was a good and healing time for me, and so it's lovely to be back. I came to Vancouver in 2002 to study at Regent College, and while I was there, I interned at 10th Church, which is just further south from here. And in 2007, I participated in a fascinating dialogue that occurred between 10th Church and the city of Vancouver. For years, 10th had had a ministry called Out of the Cold that provided food and overnight shelter to the needy. In 2005, due to a construction project, it became necessary for the out of the cold guests to enter through the front doors rather than the back alley where they had been been entering. And because of that, they became much more visible to the neighbors. There were complaints expressed by some of the neighbors to the city as to whether the 10th guests should be coming into the neighborhood at all. And the city sought to resolve this situation by requiring 10th to get a social service permit, and a dialogue ensued. Now, the crux of this dialogue was centered around this. Whether the feeding of the poor was a central or peripheral function of the church. If feeding and caring for the poor and the marginalized were deemed core components of a church's identity and worship, then churches would be allowed to care for the poor and the marginalized without getting a social services permit. But if ministry or care to the poor was considered a nice thing to do, but on the periphery of what it means to be a church, then 10th and other faith organizations in the city would be required to get a social services permit in order to care for the poor. In 2008, after a dialogue that went on for months and that involved many people, 
the city of Vancouver decided that it was part of the core ministry of the, and identity of the church to care for the poor. They agreed with 10th other faith communities and the church across history that caring for the poor is one of the marks of Christianity. Not something on the periphery, but something right at the core of what it means to be a Christian. The question of what things are core and what things are peripheral is an important one, isn't it? Especially if we consider the past two years. I imagine that for many of us, the past two years have been more challenging than most. Not just because of the COVID marathon that we've been journeying through and the resulting changes that it has been brought, but also because of tragedies such as the death of George Floyd, a rise in anti-Asian racism, anti-Semitism, the mowing down of a Muslim family while they were out for a walk, and the remains of hundreds of Indigenous children found on the grounds of residential schools in Canada, not to mention the current crisis in Ukraine. Much of the pain and the brokenness of our world has been right in our faces, crying out for our attention. We've had to wrestle and shoulder with the meaning and the impact of these events, while at the same time dealing with our own personal challenges and sometimes tragedies. It's likely that more than once in the past year and a half, in one way or another, each one of us has wrestled with the question of what is of core importance and what is peripheral. In other words, what is worth my time and energy? Racial reconciliation is a theme that has been resurfacing repeatedly both inside and outside the church recently. But how important is it really for those who follow Jesus? How critical is it to be engaged in racial reconciliation? In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., a minister and civil rights activist, shared a dream that has continued to resonate and have impact to this day. This dream gave vivid glimpses of what equality could be like. And among the snapshots that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave uh, was a picture of black children and white children playing together. It's a beautiful dream, but how significant is that dream for our daily lives? And where did Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream come from? Was his dream an expression or reflection of the heart of God or simply something nice on the periphery? Does it matter in the grand scheme of all things if Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream ever comes to fruition? Over the years, this has become an increasingly important question for me. In kindergarten, uh, I was the only black child in my class. And my teacher uh, would not refer to me by name. She would only refer to me by things that reflected my color. So for example, mon petit chocolat. I was in French immersion, it means my little chocolate. Some of the other children followed in her suit um, 
And at recess, they also called me by names that reflected my color. But their names were not as nice. One of my earliest memories is standing by the door at recess, longing for it to be over, and praying that I wouldn't break down and cry, and feeling a warm presence over my right shoulder, comforting me, which I understood to be God. I could talk a long time about the kindness, patience, and persistence of God in bringing freedom and healing into the life of a shy, withdrawn child who hated public speaking and had accepted the lie that she was of little or no value. God has cared and still cares deeply about healing the effects of racism in my life. But the question about how much God cares about racism itself and whether addressing racism was something that mattered in the church or not is only a question that surfaced later on for me. Is being involved in racial reconciliation part of what it means to be Christian? I'd like to read to you a part of God's dream given to his servant John in the form of a vision. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles or devices to Revelation 7, verses 9 to 10. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Apparently, Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream was inspired by another dream, the dream of God, of bringing great shalom to all creation and in doing so, to calling together people from every tribe and tongue and nation. John's vision in Revelation is not the only reconciliation dream of God we find in the scriptures. Among others, Isaiah 25, 6 describes the shalom of God as a rich feast in which all nations will participate. Shalom is a word that is often translated as peace in our scriptures, but it encompasses so much more than what we would think of or normally associate with peace. Shalom comprises not only peace of heart and mind and peace from violence and strife, but it's peace that is a manifestation of healed relationships between God, people, and creation. It speaks to an abundance of wholeness and goodness that is going to overflow and flood the whole earth. It's why in Colossians 1, Jesus is described as the one through whom God is reconciling all things to himself. Reconciliation is at the heart of God's work, God's essence, and God's character. And it is the fruition of God's shalom. The work that Jesus began on the cross with his death and resurrection will be complete and brought to wholeness when all things, including racial divisions, are reconciled to God and reconciled in God. Reconciliation is at the center of who Jesus is. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, one of the ways that the gospel is described is as the message of reconciliation. 
And later on, one of the ways the people of God are described is as those, uh, as ministers of reconciliation. Those who follow Jesus participate not only in reconciling people to God, but they also help people reconcile to each other. And as we look through scripture, we can see that from the very beginnings of the church, the reconciliation work that God has been, gave the church to engage in has always included racial reconciliation. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers in Jerusalem, we get hints of part of God's plan for his people. That crowd was composed mostly of people of Jewish heritage or conversion that were assembled from various parts of the world. Many of them would have been in town for the Feast of Weeks, a Jewish festival. And the believers were waiting in Jerusalem for the gift uh, that, that Jesus had promised to send. And the gift came. It was the person of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all believers. What looked like tongues of fire appeared above all of their heads. And the various cultures and languages of the people gathered there are honored and valued as God through the Holy Spirit spontaneously enables people to speak in languages not their own, but also enables everyone to hear the gospel in their native tongue. The day of Pentecost, which ushered in the birth of the church, was marked by God choosing to speak to all those gathered in their native tongues. What kind of God is this? What kind of God cares about different languages and communicates to people in their own tongue? But Acts 2 is just the beginning. In Acts 10, we find Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, up on a roof where he receives a vision. The heavens open up and a large sheet is lowered and a variety of animals are in it that Peter, whom from even before the time that he knew, uh, he learned how to walk, was trained to avoid despise and be repulsed by. They were animals that were being designated by religious law as unclean, that is unfit for e eating. And this vision Peter has is even more strange because with it comes a voice inviting him to do something he naturally would never have done. Peter was told to kill and eat. And so he responds, surely not, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. But the voice says to him, do not call impure what God has made clean. This vision is repeated three times, emphasizing how important it was. And it was really important because it was going to call Peter to do something that he'd never done before. It prepared him to go into the home of a Gentile to accept hospitality of someone of a different heritage that didn't look like him and whom he would have naturally despised. Peter was going to share the good news of God with a high-ranking official of Rome, someone in the service of, of a nation that was unjustly occupying and oppressing Peter's homeland. I was reading this, I, I couldn't help thinking about the current crisis in Ukraine and how that scenario might be playing out there. But Peter would have normally had nothing to do with Cornelius, this Roman centurion. 
but God was calling them together so that Cornelius and his household could hear the good news too, and they, like Peter, could become a part of God's family. What kind of God is this, who pulls people who would naturally regard each other with hostility into relationship with each other, and even right into each other's homes? In Acts 10.34, Peter tells us, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts those from every nation who fear him and who do what is right. God does not show favoritism. But unfortunately, more often than we like, we often do, sometimes without being, even being aware that we are doing it. It's something humanity has struggled with and is still struggling with. It's something the church has struggled with and is still struggling with. There's something about Peter's story that I, as a black woman in the church, find both disheartening and encouraging. Peter has this powerful, I would even go so far as to say life-altering, God-given vision that calls him into a different way of life, one that would stretch him to his limits. It calls him to embrace a way of welcome and hospitality and grace that's far beyond what he had ever experienced. And yet, as time goes by, Peter does not fully live into the vision that has been given to him. That's the discouraging part. Peter receives a call to change, but doesn't always fully embrace this change. But what is encouraging to me about Peter's story is that there was room within the God's people for another child of God to confront Peter with grace and truth and call Peter back to the vision that he had received. Consider with me, if you will, Paul's letter to the Galatians, written sometime after Peter receives this vision. In it, Paul is speaking to the churches in Galatia, and to say that he's pretty upset would be an understatement. Paul is angry, and the thing he's angry about is that some people have been trying to equate certain cultural marks with acceptance into the family of God. They've been trying to propagate the idea that you had to be circumcised, in other words, more Jewish, to be fully welcomed by God. And one of the effects of this kind of thinking was that even among those who considered themselves to be believers, groups were forming along cultural lines. And it was happening, so to speak, at the dinner table. One of the ways Jesus had invited his disciples to remember him was by eating together as part of their worship, a meal referred to by different traditions as communion, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist. Corporate worship often involved a meal which, in which everybody partook and through which they remembered Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We find that in Galatia, the church is composed of different cultures and they are worshiping together. But a funny thing is happening when mealtime comes round. For the communion meal, the Jewish believers are in one group and the Gentile believers those of non-Jewish heritage, are in another. They're worshiping together, but they're not eating together. 
One of the church leaders has been leading in this type of behavior, and surprisingly, it's Peter. Listen to what Paul has to say to him in about him in chapter 2. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. This may seem like a fairly small thing, wouldn't you say? They're all still worshiping the same God, declaring that Jesus is Lord and getting along. They were probably greeting each other in the foyer and thinking well of each other. But they weren't eating together. And at the meal where everyone was supposed to experience the full welcome of God and the hospitality of each other, groups were forming along racial and cultural lines. And it was unacceptable. And so Paul goes on to say that when he saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, he challenged them. There's something deeply saddening to me that Peter, having this grand vision from God, getting a taste of what God envisioned for his people, and being obedient in extending the love and kindness of God to the Gentiles, then has a kind of reversion, engaging in acts that have nothing to do with the call that God gave him. Peter gives in to fear. And because of cultural distinctions, doesn't treat the Gentile believers as if they are really part of the family of God. And he stops eating with them. There is a discrepancy between Peter's actions and the vision that Peter was given. It reminds me of faith gatherings where beautiful visions are set forth, including occasional quotations from Dr. Martin Luther King, but where these visions are not lived into. Sometimes that looks like leadership and staff in such faith communities made up of solely one ethnic group or gender, even when there is great diversity among the congregants. Sometimes it looks like friendly, detached communities where people who are different from each other greet each other and think well of each other, but do not become friends or spend time together. Sometimes it looks like a multi-ethnic church or college where often when groups come together to have a meal after a function, these groups coalesce along cultural and racial lines. The first time I was invited to speak about racial reconciliation, one of the emotions I experienced was of being uh, feeling overwhelmed. The effects of racism in Canada are complicated systemic and have far-reaching socioeconomic impact. My mother is ninth generation black Canadian. Her ancestors came to Canada from the US in 1812 as loyalists. Growing up in Nova Scotia, she had to attend a segregated school until she was in grade six. My father immigrated to Canada from South America. One of the challenges he faced while making life in Canada was of not being served in some places because he was black. 
I could also talk about my own experiences of racism in elementary, high school, and onwards. But as recently as the September, I was reminded of why I don't enjoy going into malls, when in two out of the four stores I entered, I was followed around by a salesperson who thought I was going to steal something. They believed I was someone who would steal something simply because of the color of my skin. This kind of behavior is so tiring. And yet, in a number of respects, things have gotten much better since the time of Martin Luther King's dream. Black children and white children do play together. In fact, Vancouver is one of the places in the world where you may be able to witness children of different ethnicities playing together. But we need more than that. We need the adults to play together too. What is one way among many that the church could make consistent steps forward that would impact us in moving us towards God's dream? What could help us listen to and love each other better and continue to address racial biases and structures of racial oppression? What might call us beyond politeness and coexistence into the deep reconciliation and love of Christ? Perhaps as we think about how we might continue to move forward in the work of reconciliation, one of the things we might prayerfully consider is with whom we eat. I remember a colleague in the city talking about how relationship with others shapes our hearts in a different kind of way, and it gives us a context to show care for others. Perhaps sharing bread across ethnic and socioeconomic lines is one of the ways that we can enter into Jesus' command to love one another. Jesus was famous for many things in his lifetime, such as amazing teachings, healings, and deliverances. However, one of the things Jesus was most famous for was eating with people. So much so that Jesus was referred to by some of his critics as gluttonous. Despite all the crowds following him and the miracles he was asked to perform, Jesus regularly set aside time to eat with those who were vastly different from him. To eat with someone in Jesus' day was a significant act of welcome, hospitality, and acceptance. You wouldn't eat with someone you didn't trust or someone you weren't willing to befriend. It's why so many were disturbed by Jesus' eating habits, because from their perspective, Jesus ate with many of the wrong people. It didn't matter whether they were from the lower or higher echelons of society or somewhere in between, Jesus welcomed their company at his table. A few examples would be Zacchaeus the tax collector, Simon the leper, a Pharisee, Simon Peter the fisherman. I would submit to you that one of the core ways in which Jesus went about his reconciliation work was sharing meals with others. It was a priority for him. Perhaps this is why when Jesus invited his disciples to remember him and celebrate what he had accomplished, he told them to do it with a meal through communion. Jesus made meals sacred 
a place where people can not only uh, love and encounter each other, but God as well. If we believe that part of the way that Jesus chose to participate in moving forward the reconciliation dream of God was by eating at a diverse table, what might that mean for us gathered here today? Eating is something that is core to most of our routines. I imagine that most of it, us do it two or three times a day. What if today, Jesus is inviting you to alter your eating patterns? Not their frequency, but their diversity. What if once a month or once a week, you're being invited to do something different? What if Jesus is inviting us to participate in the dream of God shown to John in his vision and to love each other as Jesus invited us to by reaching beyond our comfort zones and breaking bread with those who may be different from us? Of sitting with others and embracing the reality that they are deeply loved and made in the image of God. Perhaps your table, a cafe, a restaurant down the street, a picnic bench in the park, or a staff lunchroom might become a place where ways continuing to be made for Christ to bring reconciliation and healing among the different tribes, tongues, and nations. Places where we regularly invest the time and energy in welcoming and befriending those who don't look like us, speak like us, or have the same socioeconomic or ethnic heritage that we do, so that we may partner with Christ in his continuing work of reconciliation. Maybe, like Jesus, we can become famous for, sp spend, for spending our time uh, eating with others. In the great shalom of God, there is going to be a great feast from which people of all nations will gather together and eat together. Reconciliation is core. Let's help get ready thing. Let's help get things ready for that day. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.